Today you'll hear the audio from my event in D.C. with Andrew Sullivan and David Frum. I love the event, and I love the conversation, but here are the two mistakes I think I made. The first is I brought politics to D.C., which was a totally natural thing for me to do. When I go to a city, I'm first trying to find local guests so as to spare people the hassle of traveling, and in D.C. it's quite natural to think of people in politics, and having speakers of the caliber of David Frum and Andrew Sullivan there, it was natural to grab them. But the reality is, if there's any city in the world that would have loved to have me avoid politics altogether and talk to a physicist or a biologist, it has to be D.C. And honestly, that hadn't occurred to me until after the fact. So I should have taken David and Andrew to some other city. And that would have made much more sense for the local audience. But also, as you'll hear, David and Andrew are people with so much to say that I found myself moderating a conversation between them, largely. Which, again, was totally natural for me to do and felt fine at the time because I was interested to hear what both of them had to say. But in the aftermath, I realized that most of the people who came out that night came to see me. In fact, most of the tickets to the event had sold before I had even announced who my guests would be. So from the perspective of someone who came out to hear me talk, that person got shortchanged. Again, this is something that I'm learning as I go, but I believe these are legitimate concerns. So going forward, I think unless there's some real reason to have two guests on stage, I will opt to have just one. It will either keep me from focusing too much on one guest, as I think I did in my event with Eric Weinstein and Ben Shapiro, where Ben and I got into a mini-debate and sidelined Eric for a while, and it will keep me from falling into the mode of merely moderating between two other people, however interesting. But that said, I don't think any of these flaws really affect the podcast, and if you enjoy Andrew and David as much as I do, you'll enjoy listening to them at this event. There were some intense moments. There was some heckling for my guests at various points. Got contentious between us toward the end. We agreed about more or less everything for the first hour, and then several topics of debate came up, mostly in the Q&A period. There was a legalization of marijuana, which David and Andrew strongly disagreed about. There was a question about the validity of religion, where they both strongly disagreed with me. There was a question about Kissinger, I believe, where Andrew and David found themselves at loggerheads, and a few others. It was a little inconvenient that we couldn't deal with each one of those topics at length, but anyway, there was enough there for you to see where we all stand, and we all certainly had fun. One point of subtext that didn't actually get explained on stage, Andrew had just released an article in New York Magazine that day for which he was getting totally hammered on social media about the Me Too movement. So he was a little shell-shocked there, and I think there was one reference to it that got a laugh from the crowd because everyone knew what was going on there, but it actually never got discussed. So in case you don't know who they are, David Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic, and he's the author of the new book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. That's his ninth book. I have read it, and I recommend it. And David's been on the podcast, I think, twice before. 
He's been in conservative media for quite some time. He was a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been a lifelong Republican. And he was a speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. He holds a BA and MA in history from Yale and a law degree from Harvard. And the man certainly knows a lot about politics. And my second guest was Andrew Sullivan, who's also been on the podcast before. And we've debated various things in print over the years. Andrew is a writer at large for New York Magazine. He holds a BA from Oxford University in modern history and modern languages and a PhD in government from Harvard. He was the editor of The New Republic from 1991 to 96 and the creator of The Daily Dish, which was one of the first political blogs, uh, which he ran from 2000 to 2015. He's a winner of three National Magazine Awards, and he was also the weekly American columnist for the Sunday Times of London from 1996 to 2014. And if you don't know it, Andrew's commentary was very influential in helping our nation come to its senses around marriage equality. In fact, he wrote the first cover story and first book in favor of marriage equality in 1989 and 1995. Uh, he wrote a memoir about the AIDS epidemic titled Love Undetectable in 1998. And after that, he wrote the book The Conservative Soul in 2006. And so I now bring you David Frum and Andrew Sullivan, live from the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I have two guests tonight who, uh, they have great bios. I have their bios here, but I, I realize they actually need no introduction in this town. So please welcome Andrew Sullivan and David Frum. Thanks for coming. So uh, I just heard from my wife that my daughter, my youngest daughter, who just turned four, was asked yesterday who her favorite monsters were, and she thought for a while, and she said, Grover and Donald Trump. <laughs> now, this is after, at, at two and a half, saying she was going to vote for Donald Trump, so she's made progress. Now, I promise we are not going to focus exclusively on politics, and if I don't keep that promise, there will be a long Q&A, and you can, you can move on to other things if that interests you. But clearly, with the, with the two of you, we, we need to talk about Trump and his consequences. I want to start by attempting to nullify the, any kind of charge of partisanship that would be leveled at us, however incongruously. Maybe I'll start with you, David. David, if you don't know, is just about to release a, a big and, and wonderful book on uh, the Trump issue, the Trumpocracy. And that's, uh, that is for sale, along with our books. And in the lobby afterwards, we'll have a book signing. So, uh, Officers are made grateful very, very easily. We're the cheapest yeah. dates ever. So, um, David, just deflate this notion that, that any expression of concern of the sort that we will articulate here about politics, and but Trump in particular, must be an expression of ideology or partisanship here? Well, well, first, I don't know why I should 
be so worried about that. Because we, when you express a moral attitude or a political attitude, I don't think you have to... It, it's either true or false. It's either plausible or not. It either holds water or it doesn't. Um, so the why question, that's just psychoanalysis. and We all have, we all have our motives. Um, I come to this as someone who's a very conservative person who's been a lifelong involved in the conservative movement, not just in this country, but in my native Canada. I've been very involved in Britain as well. Um, And I've been a pretty consistent supporter, in fact, a a perfectly consistent supporter of of those parties. And I think a lot of my reaction to Donald Trump is not, is the deepest level, not a, a, a political one. He's cruel. He's cruel. He's cruel to animals. He's cruel to his children. He's cruel to people who depend, depend on him. He's tru- cruel to the men and women who come into his orbit. And I think that's, that's the beginning of um, my reaction to him. Um, I, I think it's maybe the opposite that needs to be explained. That it is, it is not the, the revulsion against him, which is now shared by more than 60%, of American society, that's not the phenomenon that needs to be explained and, and where you raise the question of, is this partisan, is this ideological? It's, it's those who support him. Um, some support him because, unfortunately, human beings are more excited by cruelty than maybe it's comfortable to admit. Um, that's how the gladiatorial games in Rome sold out. Um, you, you could fill the whole Colosseum with people watching cruelty. There's something that's exciting about it. But a lot of people, because of partisanship or ideology, are able to close their eyes Hmm. to what they see. Maybe this is an entirely vain hope, but what would it take to have a conversation on this issue of the sort we're about to have that could change minds? I mean, we're talking about 35% of the population and an environment of hyper-partisanship unlike any we've seen before. What do you think about, Andrew, the prospect of actually changing minds on this issue? What would it take? Uh, I don't know what it would take. I, I've, I've been staggered and dismayed by the number of people who are prepared to side with a figure so repellent in so many ways, um, except for one thing, which is tribalism. This is not... Partisanship is... It's sort of, it's a bit like supporting your football team. It isn't existential. It isn't integral to your entire being. But America is now essentially not one country. It's two tribes warring in a zero-sum game in which one party seeks to undo everything of the last administration, in which the notion that you might actually accept that there is a place for two parties in this system and that they should take turns, that in fact that's a strength of a bipartisan system. This has been completely wiped away by these deeper, more primordial loyalties. Is he with us or is he with them? And the bulk of the blame of this does go absolutely to the Republican Party's transformation really in the 90s particularly, I think, and onwards, into believing that the other party has no right to govern at all that it's illegitimate. Uh, Whereas I was a happy supporter of Republican presidents and conservative prime ministers until I thought, you know, it's good for Tony Blair and Bill Clinton to have a shot. This is good. It'd be good for us to be out of power for a bit. Because the point is really the whole system, not this particular interest. And then you realize the Republicans have become something like a cultural tribal force in which they had to run everything. And they still do. Yeah. 
Well, let's, you, let's talk about the system because it is just a fact that democracies fail. And this is something you cover in your book. And it's, it's a fact that we are not very sensitive to. I, I feel like, I mean, just speaking personally, I feel like the first moment in my life where I realized I was living in the stream of history, like real history where, where bad things happen you know, in surprising ways, was 9-11. That was the first moment where I realized, okay, the big bombs could start falling anywhere, and you can't take anything really for granted. And I, but yet I feel like I, up until the moment of Trump, have been asleep on this particular point, that I've taken our institutions and their strength for granted, I've taken democracy for granted, and so connect some of the dots about what's, what's at stake here. Well, I think one of the reasons it's easy to be blind to the danger around you is that we imagine the danger, the only kind of danger to worry about is the danger at its most extreme. Um, unless it's Hitler, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I keep trying to persuade people, you know, there are a lot of stops on the train line of bad before you get to Hitler Station. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can't say, let's study the worst example of democratic breakdown in the history of the world. Um, and then say, okay, well, obviously our situation is nothing like that. Uh, and I, I, I started writing about this in order to explain why that analogy can be so completely mistaken and yet the danger can be real because when democracies corrode, uh, they don't have, they can corrode more gently. You know, you asked at the beginning, you asked Andrew about changing minds. In fact, minds are being changed every day. Uh, and you can, the, the, the Gallup polls reflect that. They're not, it's not, you know, a, a cataclysmic event, but every day, you know, a couple of thousand people in America change their mind on mm-hmm. this issue. They become disillusioned, that's, that's happening. That's why we're in a dangerous situation, because Donald Trump and the people... If Donald Trump were popular, he would rule popularly. Because he is not, and because the people around him fear that in a real election, they might not do so well. In fact, they didn't do so well the last time. They keep telling you they did, but they, they didn't. Um, you know, if the ball had bounced a little bit differently and we were just looking at the total vote, Donald Trump got about half a point more of, of Michael Dukakis. And nobody writes essays about the Dukakis voter mm-hmm. and why, why, you know, what, what's, what's on their minds, the Dukakis voter. Uh, um, he's like Dukakis plus half a point. Um, may deny that. His mental condition probably forced him to, but he also is aware of it and the people around him are aware of it. And that's why they need to circumvent a lot of normal political processes, precisely because they know that minds are changing against them, they're going to need to use power in other kinds of ways. Mm. But but then what do you make of all the enabling we have seen from mainstream Republicans? So the the crucial minds that need to change are the the, the Republicans in Congress, and what what would it take for Paul Ryan, to name a name, uh, to just disavow this president? I mean, is it just pure opportunism explain this, or, or is there something deeper and less cynical? Uh, no, or something deeper and more cynical. Huh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Human nature apparently is worse than I realize. <laughs> if you start with that assumption, then life can hold nothing but pleasant surprises. Yep. Uh, that yeah. You start with a bad assumption, then things get better. Uh, look, Paul, Paul Ryan's made this deal, um, and he's, he's getting things from it. Uh, that uh, as Steve Bannon has moved off, we've seen that what, what, what is integral to Trump was not the set of issues that he wrote in 2015. What's integral to him is the power that he seeks to 
to hold in order to protect himself from legal danger and to enrich himself and also to meet his psychic needs um, and maybe to glut some of his deep inner hates. Um, what, he's, he's not so interested in the details of, of any of these bills he signs. So the people who do care, they can, they can strike a bargain with him. As the popularity of the Republican Party continues to corrode, Donald Trump will more and more become the only game in town. They will have to defend him. That's, that's the danger, the next danger that I see. Mm. The Republicans are, are going to take bad losses, it looks like, in November of 2018. They may lose a house. They may lose two houses. If, if that happens... Uh, uh, if, if that happens... There may be individual intellectuals and donors who turn on Donald Trump and say it's your fault, but the logic of the situation will force his party to cling to him more desperately because remember, you cannot, just as you, it, took three, it took three houses, or three branches of government, the House, the Senate, the President, to pass the tax cut, it takes only one of them to defend it. Mm. So uh, I want to talk a little more about what it looks like for democracy to begin to erode, and, and there, uh, there are many signs here that we're not in normal territory, but one is just with respect to the norms of political discourse. And the most infuriating retort to everything I, I say when I worry out loud about Trump uh, that I've encountered is he's just trolling, like as though that excuses any possible indiscretion, whether it's you know threatening nuclear war or singling out some private person on Twitter for abuse. You know, we have the president of the United States uh, going after someone. Th this notion of just trolling, which I mean, th there's a kind of nihilistic delight in him eradicating the norms of, of civil political discourse. And I, I mean, you, you must spend as much time on social media as I do. I'm trying what? not to. Yeah, well, it's... <laughs> Certainly today. It, it, yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. What, how, what, what do you think about this idea? There's a sense that, I mean, this just seems genuinely new, where you have smart, these are not stupid people, these are smart people who delight in a kind of wrecking ball-like chaos. Yes, because something really happened, it seems to me, in this moment. Now, if, if, if you're an old-school conservative and you've studied political thought, you're, you're terrified of what happens in democracies as they, as they continue. You know, Aristotle and Plato and the ancients understood that democracy is inherently unstable and will almost always devolve at some point into a tyranny. That those two things are deeply connected. What happens is that people have simply decided they're not interested in rational deliberation. Emotions are much more important than arguments. And they're much more interested in people rather than principles. And at some point, they made a decision that they would rather abandon self-government and give it up to the one man. This is something that they all predicted in the ancient world, but essentially when democracy is fully extended, when everyone is equal to everyone else, there are no intermediary things, there's just the masses and the celebrities, then there will some point at which the masses will elect a celebrity to govern for them and feel great calm in that, and when they've made that decision, it's a personal commitment to that person, which, you, which is at a level that cannot be argued out of. This is a cult, and he represents a rebuke to the elites that didn't think he could happen, that 
have failed dramatically on a whole variety of fronts over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and it's a sign that they really don't care if the system of government survives. That's an incredibly dangerous moment in democracy. Mm. That one of our major parties and a whole slew of intellectuals who should know better have decided to go along with this just shows they don't understand what they're dealing with mm. and how powerful and dangerous this is. You know, to, to echo Andrew's point, um, the people belong to the generation of my parents who came of age after World War II. For 30 years, they saw life just get better and better and better for the ordinary person. Things become, um, that incomes rose, the housing got better, the opportunities got better, the schooling got better, that p- people whose parents um, had not finished high school were able to complete college, um, and they had tr- tremendous confidence in the system that made all of this possible. I sort of sum it up by, if you watch an old movie, um, whenever a character steps forward who's wearing a white lab coat, mm. you know he's got the answer, especially if he has, has a German accent. That <laughs> he will tell you how the time machine works, how you've got the tiny little submarine inside the bloodstream. Um, <laughs> he has the answers. And starting sometime in the middle 1970s, whenever you see a man in the white lab coat, you know, he's like a, a, a hubristic maniac. He's the, we will see him, the wheels, his last scene will be vanishing down the gullet of a Tyrannosaurus Rex that he thought it was a good idea to bring back to life. Yeah. Um, and so, so we have a loss of confidence in a lot of institutions. But, but here's something to say, and I think maybe this is the very first thing I should have said here. I think one of the things that is sort of exciting and inspiring about the, when I say the moment, I don't mean the big moment, I mean literally the hour that we're living in, is the counteract all of this is a revival of, of civic spirit. I mean, I never thought I would be sitting on a stage on a theater on a Friday night and have people listen to these musings when they could be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't, I, I think, I don't know if narcissistic personality disorder is infectious. I hope not. But <laughs> I don't have, eno- I don't have, I haven't caught enough of it yet to think that people are here for any of us. I mean, they're here because. And one of the reactions to this president, I, I, it's, I, I quoted in the book, it's an email I got from somebody who just said that, that he had reacted to the election of Donald Trump by resolving to be a better citizen. Mm-hmm. And you see that, and, and you're doing it. And thank you. And, it's, and that's what's going to make the difference. Yeah. Well, that's... If, if, only, if only that would, would generally true. I'm, I'm more pessimistic than you. Uh, it didn't uh, last long, that hopeful feeling. <laughs> I'm here to squelch any single uh, hint of optimism here. Uh, I would say a couple of things. I've been amazed at how many people are perfectly happy with a president that has contempt for the courts, that talks about shutting down the free press, that, that, that wants to use the Justice Department to prosecute his political opponents. Actions that are inimical to liberal democracy. Mm. I, I'm, I'm amazed by the number of people that much prefer to emote about their identity or the people hating them or the people they hate as opposed to thinking about what are the best solutions to this particular problem. Um, I think identity politics has definitely made all of this worse and that when the right decided to adopt identity politics in a particular moment in time, uh, they compounded all of its problems so that Essentially, you're not voting for a set of policies against another. It seems irrelevant what he's doing. The, the people seem to support him. Regard- he's, he's pursuing a classic Randian 
policy when he ran as a populist person standing up for the forgotten men and women, but no one cares. Um, now, one of the reasons is he's just the white man who represents the last stand, really, of a white majority country, which is going to become a non-white majority country, whatever you mean by white.、Mm. Uh, and that is the first time in human history that's ever happened, when it's happening at a time also of mass immigration and declining and or st- stagnant living standards for most people. It is. It is. It is a very dangerous moment, and everybody should be attempting at such a moment to mitigate those those issues, to lean against those issues. Where the political temptation, of course, is to fan them for extraordinary power, and that's happening now on both sides. So you're not voting on a set of issues. You're voting because you're gay. You're voting because you're black. You're voting because you're white. You're voting because you're a woman. These are not arguments. This is not、yeah. a democracy. Well, I want us to touch identity politics because I think that. Is especially problematic on the left now, and it will, will be the reason why the left will fail to contain this problem. But I, I want to stay on this point of explaining the Trump phenomenon, and it seems to me it's not—it can be fully explained, perhaps almost without reference to who Trump is himself. It's like he's—I mean, I, I've said this before, but I, I've been thinking of him for a very long time as a kind of evil Chauncey Gardner. He's, he's just like it. <laughs> He's a person who has stumbled into a situation that is misinterpreting his chaos as these genius manipulative gifts,、uh, but he's in some deep sense exactly as he appears, and yet he's paying absolutely no consequence for being uninformed and imbecilic and and callous. And and, yeah, you, and David, you say something in your book about that it's not so much him; it's. The enemies he's picked that explains his rise. I mean, his, it's, it's his counter elitist stand across the board, which has which has drawn so much support.、Um, like everybody, I, I was riveted by the Michael Wolff book, of course,、um, and. And I, I mean, as someone who's releasing a book the week after, you feel a little bit like whoever had to go on the Golden Globe stage after Oprah.、Uh, <laughs> but I think. Well, The, the image of, of Donald Trump as a drooling, imbecilic, senile-tending maniac. I mean, that, that I think that's not that can't be true. He has gifts, and one of his gifts, one of his most important gifts. Yes, I'll give. I'll grant you one gift. Whatever, whatever you're about to say, I'll give you for okay, free. Okay, but there's, there's not one more gift. He's got. He's got the bully's instinctive ability to see the psychic weak spot in his yeah. target. Um, he. He did to Jeb Bush and to Marco Rubio and to Ted Cruz.、Um, he found that thing、yeah. uh, that you know, like for Donald Trump to call Ted Cruz a liar. I mean, it seems audacious, right? But but what he saw in Ted Cruz was that Ted Cruz is not the person. He had constructed an identity that Ted Cruz was a very sophisticated graduate of America's you know most、um, expensive. Uh, <laughs> educational institutions, you know, someone who has a deep knowledge of the law, you know, someone who's got a very modern marriage,、um, you know,、uh, you know his, his wife, his wife was the head of Goldman, the Goldman Sachs office in Texas. This guy was not. 
the person that he presented himself to, his, his the evangelical voters he sought. There, there was a central lie at the heart of the Ted Cruz message. And Donald Trump saw that and he hammered that point. And he saw that there was a kind of psychic weakness in Jeb Bush, that he could, that, and that, that, that low energy was a way of saying, you know, I'm going to attack you and I'm going to attack you and I'm going to attack you. And what you're going to do is take a st- half a step backward and stand on your tippy toes to look taller, but you're never going to meet me. And, and he, what he did to those opponents, he's done to the American political system. He's found its points of vulnerability and he has twisted them. He, you know, that he wants you to believe that he's popular. He is not. But what he is, a, he is very skilled at is being able to put together something close enough, uh, enough popular support to overwhelm the institutions and to keep that support revved up by constantly making them united in what they hate and make everybody else be divided in what they are trying to defend. There's another simple gift he has, um, or rather ability, which politicians in the past in the West have not done. Now, they've done it in code, and they've done it with different issues appealing to certain instincts, but no one's gone out there and openly said, vote for me because you hate or are afraid of black people. Vote for me because you're afraid of foreigners come in with different color skin. Actually go out there and pull. There are levers you can pull in politics. There are, there are appeals you can make to people's worst lizard brain instincts. And in most liberal democracies, every politician knows we don't do that because we know not how awful it is, but how powerful it can be. And he just was the first person to say, I don't care. I'm right. going to say these things. I'm going to call it a shithole country. I'm going to put that in the, the evil Chauncey Gardner category. Yeah. So I mean, any just, politician I just, I, can do that. We, we you can were, do that we any day. We were vulnerable day. to somebody who just simply did not have the scruple or the political yeah. calculation. Right. Simple to, as that. Yeah. And then, and then what he's done, and, and this is, he has got more quick gifts than that. He's able, actually, he, he did a self-hostage taking. I mean, how is it that you get a Lindsey Graham who was... Um, one of Donald Trump's severest critics and a person who was committed to a set of political views about as far within the Republican Party as you could be away from Donald Trump and, and make him not only his defender, but the person who would be one of two signers of a criminal referral of one of Donald Trump's opponents and break all the rules of the Senate that Lindsey Graham loves, or not the rules, but the habits of the Senate that Lindsey Graham so loves, he's a real institutional senator, that you would send this thing out without even informing, never mind consulting your Democratic counterparts? How did he get Lindsey Graham to do that? And the answer is, well, Donald Trump has sort of shackled the whole Republican Party to himself. If he goes down, they all go down. And indeed, they sort of know that he's going to be the last man to sink because he's got a four-year term and they're all facing... But it, again, it, isn't that a situational truth? It's just it, that's just what happens when you have thirty-five percent of the country, and whatever percentage of the Republican Party that is, that simply will not disavow you no matter what you do. Well, it, it just it, seems it, like anyone different. anyone could successfully exploit thirty-five percent that is unmovable no, no, and scandal-proof in a two-party system with an electoral college. Exploiting thirty-five percent is actually quite tricky. Uh, you exploit thirty-five. I mean, Herbert Hoover got more than thirty-five percent of the vote in nineteen thirty-two. Mm-hmm. It didn't do him a lot of good. Um, that what, what, what Trump un- understood and what previous Republicans have not faced up to um, is that the Republican message has become over the past generation, but especially since the Great Recession, more and more out of sync, not only with the country, but with the Republican Party's own voters. Uh, that was the thing that Donald Trump understood that, uh, that the others did not, that your own voters 
don't, I mean, I, my joke about this, I kept saying through the cycle, was that the Republican base was signaling they wanted more healthcare security, less immigration, and no more Bushes. And what the party offered was less healthcare, more immigration, and one more Bush. And it, they couldn't have missed it more. And, and he saw that. Um, but what, what, what Paul Ryan and the others believe is if only we had better communications or explained it more, or if only put a little bit more of this special sauce on it, we could somehow build out. Um, a, a, instead, we're not going to change our core message, but we can, in fact, that was the thing that so many people said after 2012, we're not going to in any way change our core message, but we will season it. What Donald Trump in, intuited was, if you've got 35%, that's only a problem so long as you've got a political system that requires you to have a majority. But what if I can short-circuit that? What if I can sort of um, weaken, weaken the political restraints and you can actually govern with, with less than half of the country, maybe a lot less than half. And what does this look like? I, I think Americans pay too much, when they think of democratic breakdown, they pay too much attention to the spectacular example of what happened between the wars in Europe. I sometimes try to direct people to what's happening now in Central Europe. But one of the ways, we have, there's an example right here at home, which is what happened in the half century after Reconstruction. I mean, here's a, a, a statistic that when you hear about this gerrymandering in North Carolina to keep in mind. So in, in 1872, after the Civil War, the state of South Carolina had about 700,000 people, um, of whom 100,000 cast a vote in the presidential election of 1872. 1924, half a century later, the state's population has grown from 700,000 to 1.7 million. The number of votes cast drops from 100,000 to 50,000. Um, and North Carolina, I mean, South Carolina was still an American state. It had a governor, it had a state legislature. Um, I think you'd have to be a pretty informed person of the state's history to say it wasn't really that much of a democracy in 1924. Uh, but it looked like one. It had elections. It had newspapers. Uh, it had courts that functioned more or less approximately failure, fa fairly, at least for the white half of the population. Um, you, that could be the future. One of the things that Donald Trump has forced, and he's forced on, I think, a lot of us on the right-hand side of the spectrum, is a a deeper encounter with the American past, things that we thought were past and buried that were maybe just dormant and that are coming to the fore again. Mm. And, but the problem is, it seems to me, and I, I'm not, obviously, there's no defense of Trump. There's not a single redeeming characteristic. But, you both I mean, I've tried very hard. I've kind of prayed about this because you're not supposed, as a Christian, you're not supposed to hate somebody quite like that who's in your, in your mind all the, what I resent most about this is the psychic terror that a mentally disturbed person can impose upon you every minute of the day. Uh, that my definition of a free society is, is where you can spend a week without thinking about the person who's running the country. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But he's also exploited a situation where they did it purposely, or, I don't know. But look, We've had 30 years, for most people in this country, getting nowhere economically. Vast majority. Uh, they, they've also we've also experienced an unprecedented, well, not quite unprecedented, but only once before this volume, uh, of immigration uh, from one country, primarily, that has completely altered the demographics of this country in ways that people are, especially older generations, are simply bewildered by. The last time that happened, we had the 1924 Immigration Act, which basically shut all immigration down. 
If you are not, if you are a democratic party and your only response to this question, which, by the way, also must affect the wages in terms of uh, competition, and your only response to the situation is all of you people are racists and we're not going to even discuss you, discuss the issue, uh, then I think that's why people land back with him. Uh, and, and I think the Democrats' inability to listen to those white working-class voters in the middle of the country has, has been an incredible big... It's big an enabler to his capacity as president as Hillary Clinton was an enabler to his candidacy. Yeah, well, just to take that single issue, the idea that immigration is all upside with no casualties, yeah. that's clearly a lie. And the fact that millions of people were suffering the, the actual truth of that equation... And that's unaddressed on the left. And, and to, Not to just unaddressed, but you're a racist. Yeah, you're a racist if you worry racist. about it. Yes, this exactly. is how the far left has now occupied the entire territory on questions of identity and is actively alienating the very people we need to talk to. So, and and yeah. they don't think, you, they somehow think they can't, the people out there don't see what's going on. They, they, they think they don't hear what they're, be, what they're being called. They can't, hear, well, I, they can't hear the lazy bigotry of elites about white working class. They, mm. they don't hear someone on television use the word white male as a bald insult in itself. Right. Uh, and that, is, that reverse racism uh, has, has definitely pushed people up against a wall. I, don't think, I think if there were a credible center-left party which adopted serious policies to address economic inequality uh, and curtail immigration, I think they could win very easily. Mm. Uh, so, so how do you, I want to hear how you both view the, perhaps the, the rosiest future here of the, the left and the right. I mean, what do conservatives and, and liberals do well now to put us back on our proper footing? One of the, the beginning of answering this question is to recognize what a frozen political world we've lived in for the past quarter century. I mean, yep. imagine somebody standing in the year 1990 and looking forward 25 years and backward 25 years. Uh, Rip Van Winkle falls asleep in 1990, wakes up in 2015 and says, who's running for president? Bush and Clinton. Oh, what are they talking about? Oh, health care in Iraq. <laughs> Okay, you go back 25 years from 1990, you're in 1965. The most powerful person in Washington, D.C. is the head of the AFL-CIO. The second most powerful is J. Edgar Hoover. There are liberal Republicans. There are urban riots. Um, it's a different world. And I think in a dynamic country like this, what happened between 1965 and 1990 in politics is normal. And the stasis, because when you think about how much everything else in the country changed between 1990 and 2015, there's no internet in 1990. Um, you know, that, that we're, we're uh, in 1990... Uh, life expectancies are still rising for Americans, and that they stop rising after. It's a, it's a different world, but the politics were frozen. Whatever else he's done, I think Donald Trump has unfrozen those politics. And so, when you ask at the beginning this question about partisanship, um, I think for those of us who are of a certain age, um, it, it's going to be hard to understand. You know, those maps are about to start moving really fast, and. A lot of the question of who is on the right and who is on the left is going to be, and what those things are, is going to mean, I think, more different in 2025 from 2015 than it meant in 2015 from 1990. I, I think Andrew points to something. I mean, new things are going, um, are going to become 
issues. Immigration will remain a huge issue. What is happening, you know, when we think how much we talk about wages and how little we talk about life expectancies, but Americans are living less long. And that- Why Americans? White Americans. White Americans are living less, less long. But other Americans, just generally, the life expectancies are, are moving, are improving for non-white Americans way less quickly than they are for people in the rest yes. of the world. And that is in peacetime. There are only two other places where that has ever happened, or there's only one other place, and that is in the post-Soviet republics after the breakup of the Soviet Union. In, during the Depression, American life expectancies continued to improve. That, how does that not, I mean, it's an amazing degree of how the political world is so insulated from everybody else that people dying earlier. Is, uh, is, is the opiate epidemic the main cause there? Yeah, is it's that not, it's a main cause, yeah. but uh, Americans are less likely to wear seatbelts than people in other developed countries. Yeah. Um, they eat worse. Um, they shoot themselves accidentally at rates. <laughs> um, dramatically higher. Uh, they have more uh, other kinds of accidents. Um, you know, you could, you could uh, uh, the, the, drugs are, the drugs are certainly part of it, but they're not all of it. And the fact that, that is not this, that, that is not maybe the issue uppermost in people's minds, that, that is not issue one, I find that amazing. I think it has to become issue one. Um, and, and the problem here, though, is that the, is ideology. That what happened is that politics became one ideology versus another, and they never changed. Uh, so that those of us who, are, for example, started out, and, and I still think of myself as a, a small-c conservative, but those of us who started out believing that the problem of the 70s was overweening government, too high taxes, needed to be reformed, needed to be opened up, uh, too many tariffs, that was a completely legitimate position because those are the problems of the time. That has now run its course. It has succeeded and therefore now is a failure. Yeah. What has happened is that the neoliberalism that was needed in the 70s is actually poison in 2017. It is not addressing the issues. And yet, Ryan and the Republicans put this, this bill through that's entirely not about reality, mm. that's entirely about ideology. And also, people are punished, severely punished, both socially and politically, if they change their minds. When Andrew and the worst are... thing you can do, apparently, is to decide... This time I'm going to support a Democrat rather than a Republican. Then there's no incentive for you. No incentive for anybody in this system to come out and enter the center. Okay, so you, but you take the, the extremes. You take the, the pathology of identity politics on the left that, that we've touched on briefly. And you take the extreme uh, of the right that you describe in your book, which is, uh, there are so many stats there, but I think one of them was that 70% of Republicans are still taken in by birtherism. They still think Obama was may, They're not sure. know, may not have been. Yeah. If you add a, those who are sure he wasn't, yeah. or those who it's think like 40 still, and 30, yeah. 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 You, you get up to 70, so, you know, yeah. So what, I mean, this, this just seems discussion proof. So like, what, how do we move towards some kind of normalcy? Well, remember when you see all these statistics about, about what Republicans think, remember every, every week, there are fewer Republicans. This is a... This is a, um, a, a oh, so it's a, a 70% of 70 people well, in the end? It, you, you can mark that. So it's, it's like, um, I, it's Friday night, we don't want to bring up fractions, but, <laughs> but if the denominator is, is going down, uh, is, you can't just look at the numer yeah. numerator, the denominator is going down. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly true that you have this radicalized... Um, you have this this radicalized Republican world, we are, we are going to see, you know, 
Well, let's talk about you and me, maybe, in this context. Because... I should say, Andrew and I have known each other. I, I won't embarrass him because he's so youthful, but we've known each other a while. Um, and, in fact, uh, we were just reminiscing about this. I've, I've known Andrew for a year longer than I've known my wife. Or the, uh... But my, my point is simply that... <laughs> I'm trying to embarrass... I'm embarrassed. He doesn't look it. Thank you, David. But the, the, uh, the point here is that we both started out in a certain place and changed our minds. And my, I mean, I supported Clinton in 92, which meant I was sort of excluded suddenly from any sort of respectability in conservative circles. Then when I turned against the Iraq war decisively and apologized for my role in it, sorry to bring that subject up, but nonetheless, uh, then I was completely cut off. There, the, the, and this is also true now increasingly, unfortunately, on the left. If you don't sign up to the entire brigade of identity politics, you are banished. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so the ability for us to actually, the very processes of thinking, of changing your mind, of weighing different things, of seeing something the other side might have thought of, and openly doing that has been, has been stigmatized. Mm. Uh, and you are praised constantly, and all the rewards in both our intellectual and media, I'm talking about the intellectual life and media, you are praised and rewarded, whether you're in a university or in a right-wing think tank, for your loyalty to the party line. David actually was sacked from AEI because he actually thought that Obamacare was a perfectly decent, if flawed, possibility, and it was not the hill for Republicans to die on. And he was fired. People... People are, this, this has become a group mentality within Washington itself, in which no independence of thought, no independence of party is, is, is ruled in any way legitimate. Yeah, well, one thing that has always struck me as incredibly strange is that if you know someone's position on one topic, let's say climate change, or the, the link between human behavior and climate change, you know their position with a high order of confidence on a dozen unrelated topics, whether it's gun control, or what, what's the relationship between climate change and gun control? Uh, and yet, you know, you could win money all day long if you could just find a casino that would, would take these bets. So... <laughs> yeah, and the climate change thing is, look, it's just... I, I'm, I've always been a skeptic about any uh, sort of left-wing cause, let's put it that way. Um, this is not a left-wing cause. This is, this is science, clearly, and the only and there are obvious things we can do. Uh, and some of them we are doing. It's not there's not an instant solution to this, but some of them we are doing. I do not understand. I just there is some. It's psychotic that this is regarded as. And every there's no other civilized country in the world where a political party actually denies the existence of climate change. But no mm -hmm. political party mm -hmm. in the world, no right-wing political party in the world, mm -hmm. uh, except for this pathological, ideological, alienated and angry fringe. Mm -hmm. it, we're going to agree that uh, there's a lot of uh, things about the politics that are obsolete, but it, it, the, that, that linking up 
party, that's the party system. That's what parties do. Um, that you have to organize different people in, who have different points of view to cooperate uh, on politics. And you can, you, this happens on, uh, in any political system, that, that people have a set of, of concerns. And so people from Los Angeles are able to work, collaborate with people from Boston uh, on different kinds of issues because that, that, that's what party mechanisms do. I, I don't think, and I think there are always going to be people who are more liberal and who are more conservative. That's linked to the structure of the human brain. Um, there are people, and people are going to have different interests. There are going to be people who work for the government sector. There are people who work for the private sector. They're going to have different interests. The, the special problem we have right now um, is we're all supposed to be committed first and foremost to the rules of the game, rules that protect um, your view when your guy, when my guys are in power and that protect my rights when someone else's people are in power. And that's what's in danger right now. I, I mean, I think when the day will come, I hope, when you know, we can go back to you know, taking out the um, wet mackerels and hitting each other with them over whether the, what the corporate income tax rate would be. And I, I will probably agree with Paul Ryan about where the corporate income tax rate should be. But I don't agree with him so much that I'm willing to corrode the American constitutional system in order to get my way. I mean, I, 21% of... Which, to my mind, is actually the definition of a conservative. 21% you want, to, you want to conserve and, and keep this valuable and rare experiment in liberal democracy in the history of the world alive and healthy. And that means ad adhering not just to its formalities, but to its norms. And one of those key norms is understanding that the other party or the other point of view does have a chance and should have a role in, 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 in government. And, in, and, and this is the genius of our system. And Andrew spoke a little while ago about things that, you know, can you say something positive about Donald Trump? And, and I think one of the things you can say that is positive is he's, he's helped people to rediscover the preciousness of a lot of things that they took for granted. Um, that, That's a it, backhanded it, compliment if I've ever heard one. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, not, it's not a compliment to him, but it's kind of, it's, it's this, it is this, this um, there are gifts that come with him. If we can, if we, if this, if this story has a happy ending, if this story has a happy ending, we'll, we'll discover some things. And, and I think different people in different points of view of this room will, will have, have this, you know. I never realized, for example, quite how much I loved this country until this monster set about to try and dismantle it. Uh, I had the, although it took some time, I, mean, I, I had the weird experience of actually uh, being naturalized as a citizen uh, a month after he was inaugurated. Hmm. Um, and that was an extremely strange feeling. Uh, but I realized that I actually do love this constitution. I love the system that was set up. I love, liberal I love liberal democracy, which means freedom of speech is something we cherish. And the worst, and we defend it for the worst possible advocates. Uh, it means that we defend the rights of people whom we don't like and who we don't agree with. And I realized that actually the, the reason why I have this daily, hourly, minute by minute, unease and deep psychic trauma, really, from the existence of this president uh, is because he is personified sacrilege. This goes deeper than opposing his views or even finding his personality as, and his personhood repellent. He is, he is attacking something very sacred and has no concern for it. And, uh, 
And that makes me both angry and appalled, but also energized to fight back on every front that I can. But let me instance a couple of other things that we're rediscovering the preciousness of, and this may be a harder teaching, at least I, I don't know, but it may be for some a harder teaching. As Donald Trump attacks the FBI, we're realizing why democracies need agencies like the FBI. You can, that, uh, the, the, the threats to a society do not always come in the form of columns of invading tanks. They can be covert. You need, you need, the, you need counterintelligence agencies. You need, you, uh, you need people who can defend you against war in the shadows. And I think a lot of people on the left who had a few years ago been willing to cheer Edward Snowden and even and worse, mm -hmm. Julian Assange as heroes, have suddenly realized, you know what, that, that wasn't heroic. That uh, they, were, they were undermining institutions that defend you just as much as, as the Army and the Coast Guard, the disaster services do. Mm. Yeah. It, uh, at the Golden Globe, I, I will admit I didn't watch the whole of the Oprah speech, uh, 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 but there was a clip that I saw that, that struck me, which Oprah uh, kept used the phrase, um, Oprah, we're, we're like this close, so I always call her by, by her first name. Uh, uh, she, she kept instancing this phrase, your truth. And I thought that was a very pre-2017 thing to say, yeah. because yeah. I think what we've all discovered is there's the truth, and it's precious. Uh, you know, the phrase post-truth did not begin as an insult. It began as a compliment. It began inside the academy uh, by students of advanced ideas who want to say that the idea of truth, that's kind of like very 19th century, very patriarchal, very out of date. What, what is sort of happening now is post-truth, where we recognize that the different people have different narratives and there's no way to judge between them. And that's why no one knows how many people were on the mall on Inauguration Day of 2017. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we said, you know what? There's the truth. It's precious. It's powerful and it's precious and it has to be defended. And also, and, and let, let me yeah. say one, one more, because there's some things that, on, for people on my side of the spectrum, that there's some things that are, that are hard to, uh, that, that, that you've had to discover. Um, and one is, you know, I, I think I would have said, in, in, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, um, how powerful a force is bigotry in American society? Well, it's certainly there, obviously, but it's clearly a waning thing and not really central. Uh, to the country's politics. And we've had to, you know, you've had to confront some, some of the darknesses in American society. I, I still believe they are minority phenomenon, but they are clearly weaponizable and powerful. And, and, and that's, that's a hard, hard teaching for people like me to confront. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think there are gradations, clearly, that we would want to recognize there, where I mean, obviously the bigotry and racism are, are still problems, but he captured more people than who, who are just racist. They're, they're just people who just didn't care about the signs of his racism enough for it to matter. You know, they cared about other things. And that's, we might want to call that racism, but it's a, it's a much larger footprint of moral culpability here and insensitivity to the issue than it's just, I think it's... And we should be able to hold that in mind, which I agree. Uh, I was kind of, I'm, the thing I was most shocked by, to be honest, was the instant revulsion against the first African-American president who really promised uh, to be a transformational mm. figure if we, would, if we would all agree. And their hatred for him, this extraordinary, intelligent, gifted, reasonable human being, really took my breath away. Uh, I really didn't believe. I couldn't see any other reason behind it 
really, the immediacy of the response, then part of this tribalism, because it's the other party, you've got to destroy the other party, but also the inherent racism. It was kind of expensive. It. But, but I think to reduce everything to that is, is, is too reductive. Things are more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. What we were saying before about the economy and immigration and so on. Right. But I also think it's important that we reestablish the idea of a citizen who's a citizen with no hyphen, uh, that you're not, there is a moment, an important moment when we enter politics, when we're not a gay American or a male American or a white American or a brown American. We're an American. And as, that, as a citizen, everybody has the right to talk about anything they want. No one, no one has to apologize for being uh, a white person talking about racism. I'm sorry, but no. No one, has a, no one should be allowed, either white or race or sexual orientation, some sort of privileged position. They may have interesting things to tell you about themselves, but that doesn't mean you can be more, you can be more wrong in your own identity uh, than you could be right when you leave your identity behind. And I think the, the way in which uh, we're, just, we're just insisting on our own truth at this point. And the other thing I also want to say is that I don't believe that society or human life is really defined ultimately by power structures that constantly oppress or privilege others. I think it's a much more complicated world than that, that people have more agency than people realize, that these, that these structures are sometimes in your own head, that the possibility of, of, of transforming your life is always with you, and that that promise of, of, of being simply a, a citizen is always there. And there's so much pressure now to prevent that kind of cross-pollination, mm-hmm. those, with, those complicated with, ideas. Without disagreeing with anything Andrew said, and I agree with every comma, um, but the very first thing you said, where you said everyone has a right to speak. Of course they do. But one of the things we were going to talk about today is the power of, of social media. And we also have some responsibilities. So a question I face and have thought about a lot is what can we as individuals do in, you know, what are our responsibilities? What are our opportunities? And one of the things to, just to bear in mind is if everyone in this phone has a, a cell phone in his or her pocket, I'm sure, I hope turned off or mute, set to mute. Um, but if you do, you're carrying in your pocket more communication power than Walter Cronkite ever had at his disposal. And you have some responsibilities on, on how you use it. And I think one of the things that we've seen in 2016 is that that's sort of a new thought to people. You know, we're, you know, we talk about the media as if not every human being on earth with a cell phone is part of the media, but we all are. Um, one, one thing we can do is before you forward, before you comment, be careful. I mean, you, we were talking before, uh, before this former part of the program began about how you've been a victim of people who fraudulently edit audio tape. Mm. Uh, or edit audio to make yeah. it seem like you've said one thing, which is, you know, it's one malicious individual doing this, but it's not different from what the Russians do today or the Chinese tomorrow or somebody else the day after that. Um, what is the check on that? Well, we'll always have malign people. The check on that is that we have to begin to re- reconceptualize ourselves, not just as consumers of information, but every one of us who ever forwards or likes anything as a disseminator with all the responsibilities that the Washington Post and the New York Times ha- has before we publish to do our own checking. Yeah. Yeah, we were, but that's, we were talking about that in If the you context. want to be a gloomy conservative about this, that's gone. The notion that people will exercise self-restraint to edit themselves 
is, is well, I, I guess I guess the, the people who, who you could expect to exercise self-restraint are people with public platforms who should be concerned about their own reputation. So there, there should be a consequence to maliciously forwarding something that you didn't take a moment to check out and never offer an, an apology once it's, it's revealed to be fraudulent. Uh, yes, we, we, well, I should when, just give some context. Here. We were yeah. talking about this in the context of what's happened to Steven Pinker in the last 48 hours, I think. There's some internet troll who has been editing bits of my podcast maliciously to, to make it sound like I'm saying the opposite of what I'm saying. But he just did that to some video of Steve Pinker, uh, and then that made the rounds. But the, 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 what's so pernicious here is that it's not one person with 50 followers on Twitter who does this. It gets out, and then the, the usual suspects, for ideological reasons, who have huge platforms spread around, and then millions of people are, are now... Uh, that, that's how you actually become a, a media company that's just spreading lies. You know? Yeah, but media companies now, the, you know, the, the entire incentive structure is traffic. Hmm. Uh, and the, 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 the temptation of a, of a magazine or a newspaper on a daily basis which is struggling to survive, to play games with this kind of stuff, to pander, to, to, to provoke and deliberately push things to an extreme, is so systemic that those examples filter out. And also, the sheer ability, and I, I, you know, I, start, I was in the internet very early and started the first unedited um, political blog, really. Uh, so I saw this firsthand in my own thoughts. Uh, the, the economic viability of your, your business is, is, is to accommodate the current craze, not to push against it. I have always seen that through the lens of the, the poorly aligned incentives due to ad-based revenue. Yeah. Is, is, there, is there some other explanation, well, or, or is it just the ad model? For- it's, it will be, people are beginning to understand the ad model is, is not the best model. I mean, I did a subscription model in it with no ads whatsoever, mm-hmm. because precisely this. Um, but I do think structurally... There's just something about just being able to see for the first time, and we're all addicted to this, our numbers. How many people have we got? How many? You've got more followers than me. I have more. This is, this is the compulsion. The quality of it is irrelevant. And, and then also the networks themselves put a great premium. I mean, even, just, even if you're getting no money, you're getting way more attention. Don't be so, don't uh, be so fat, don't be fatalistic about this. I mean, we have seen... <laughs> this is... This is I mean, I mean, I, I think we are, when I think about this Trump moment, it, it's a little bit like the experience of our parents and grandparents when they came out of the extremism of, that led to fascism and communism and, and the, war, the terrible wars of the middle part of the century, which are much graver and deadlier and more horrifying problem than anything that we've yet had to encounter. Um, developed societies, the United States and Europe, that there was learning that, you know what, extremism causes wars that gets people, get people kills and, and martial glory and you know, that it leads to disaster. Um, and there, there was, in, in those 30 years after World War II, you saw people drawing back, societies drawing back from things that had you been a pessimistic person in 1925 or 1935, you'd have just thought it was inevitable. Um, you know, the wife of the great aviator, uh, Charles Lindbergh, wrote a book about fascism called the wave of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she thought this, you know, and, and the, when you read the book, she, you know, she 
was certainly an apologist, but it's written in an overwhelming spirit of pessimism. That what, you know, as she keeps saying, you, know, you may deplore these changes, you may admire them, but any thinking person has to see that the democratic way is over and that these new ways of organizing society, these are the waves of the future. And then four years later, they're all smashed to pieces and in rubble. Um, and it turned out... So I should be optimistic? No. What, what, you, you I mean, should, if you, it what, takes a Holocaust and a world war to get us to no. come to our senses, I'm but, not particularly optimistic. Uh, but what you should see is that, that societies can, can draw back. Um, you know, when I talked to... Uh, yes, the, the, I mean, there are all these incentives from clicks, but the clicks are falling to worthlessness in terms of their value. Um, and very few of us uh, depend, uh, very few of the people in this, in this hall depend on clicks for their income. So they can completely freely say, you know what, you know, before I forward this audio clip that titillates me, I'm going to see where does it come from? Um, is, this a, you know, is this the authentic source? If I'm, going, if I'm interested in Stephen Pinker, um, Harvard University or somebody like somebody reputable has put up a link to the talk, I will click to the link from, the repu- from Harvard and not from this person I've never heard of. That's not so hard, and there's no reason not to do it. There are a lot of reasons to do it, but one of the things we're all going to, ha- I think, have to discover from this, you know, it's, it's on us. It's on us. Uh, Donald Trump is something that happened. It's also something we did to ourselves. I mean, we were not aware as, Amer- as life expectancies collapsed. We were not aware... Um, of the cost of immigration to people who are on the losing side of it. Um, we are not aware enough of um, the friction and the relationships between the sexes. I mean, one of the things, I'm a parent, one of the things I worry about, um, people under 30 are less likely to be married or living with a person of the opposite sex than ever before in record-keeping, and it's not because of hookup culture, but they're also less likely to be having sex in at any time in the past two generations. That there's Something's gone wrong, and that's... And, and it is... It is out of that, you know, mistrust between so much of this, the things that worry you about this identity politics and the mutual recrimination come because people are not finding love with each other and establishing stable families. Again, I, 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 I admire your optimism. I really do. No one has, uh, very few people ever say that to me. <laughs> you found someone more pessimistic than you. I just, you know, I've lived this addiction with the internet. Uh, it's, it's staggering how engrossing it is, how irresistible it is. So you, you stepped away in one of the most conspicuous step-aways that has ever occurred on the Internet. So do you want to say a little bit about that and what, what I, the effect was? I just felt that, that, the, that the experience of constantly living in this virtual space was removing the possibility for living. The, the delusion that this device is supplemental your actual life, it's just part, it's just, as opposed to a replacement for your actual life, mm. is very easy to slip into. If, if an alien had arrived on Earth 12 years ago and now, the biggest actual visible distinction he would see is that everybody's walking around looking down like this. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen now, those photos with, with the phones removed from people's hands and they're just staring vacantly into their, <laughs> their hands? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, that, the, the thing is that we've underestimated what that does to the society itself and what happens to people when they, they're essentially socially isolated from other physical human beings in that interaction. What happens is that you become depressed. Mm. What happens is you become anxious. Uh, what happens is that you, you lose even the capacity to develop the skills necessary for real human relationship. Uh, and it's no wonder 
that people are having less sex even. Uh, and it's no wonder that we have levels of depression in the wealthiest, most successful country ever existed that, are, that is compounding all the time. It's no wonder that people who feel totally isolated uh, and totally alone seek to numb this. Again, we, it's staring us in the face. If you're successful and competent, you're, you're on weed. Uh, but if you're poor and you're lost and your family's broken down and your town is a ghost town, really, because the industry that created it uh, has disappeared, then opioids are an amazing thing. Uh, and the only true response to drug addiction is a, a fuller life, uh, a human connection. The, the natural opioids, our own natural opioids that exist, the oxytocin is released when we have sex, the, the opioids that give us a feeling of sustainable joy and friendship, uh, the, 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 the intricacies and joys and, and lows of a family. Um, these are what make us human. We've been humans on this earth for a very long time. We've never existed like this before. And we are seeing social breakdown, we are seeing extraordinary psychological damage, uh, and we're seeing epic rises in drug addiction to the extent that 65,000 people last year died of an opioid overdose. That's more than were killed in Vietnam. That happened in one year. Now, those of us in the successful urban areas who are happily... Uh, smoking legal weed, and God bless it. And I, I, I do it every day. Uh, we're not overdosing and dying. But you put seven grains of fentanyl as something you can't even begin to prevent coming into the country. Uh, seven grains of salt, imagine, that gives you amazing high, and nine grains of salt kills you. That is everywhere in the country, and it is killing and destroying families, lives, marriages, young people, very young, successful, happy young people. Now, something is going deeply wrong, and I truly believe that social atomization has been put on steroids by the Internet, mm. and that we are alone, and, and we're alone together. That is a fatal combination. That, that's, that's all true. We've also seen American society overcome things like this. Uh, we've see, seen it overcome alcohol addiction in the 19th century. Um, and one of the things that, again, may be a perverse gift of Donald Trump, it, 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 if Hillary Clinton were president right now, you'd have the quarters of power crammed with highly educated, highly intelligent people with 72-point programs for dealing with the opioid crisis. And we'd be having policy debates. And many of these ideas would be very smart, and some of them might even actually work. Um, but you wouldn't get much of a hearing for what Andrew just said, which is profound. I mean, where, when Amer- the last time America had to deal with a, a, a crisis of addiction of this scale, when, when the, the people, when the temperance movement of the 19th century stood up against alcohol at a time when Americans, by the way, you know, people think of this as, you know, Carrie Nation and her acts and what was she so upset about. And no one has exactly able to calculate how much people were drinking back then. But if you think it's something like seven to 15 times as much as people are drinking now, you'd be in probably in the right area. I mean, they were drunk. Even even in England? (laughs) 
Americans three to four. Times. <laughs> Americans, well, no, in England, actually, people the, the, the same. There's the same turn toward temperance. Americans drank on a colossal scale. It shocked visitors from England when they came here, um, and and it was and it was overcome through social movements. Um, and there, I'm not an optimistic person by nature, but I do keep seeing I, in, in this time of Trump, I keep meeting people who are who have been sort of jolted into the fuller life that you're talking about. And political activism is a, is a way to begin it because one of the things that happens, if you're going to work politically effectively, you have to go talk to other people. You can't do it on the end. You have to go knock on doors. Uh, you, have, you have to work with people um, who are different he, from you. You may is, not like them in, in every respect. Here's and, what I think is new, which may not be as recoverable. What's new, what prohibition does is, in one of the iron laws is that over time, the substance becomes more concentrated because transportation carrying carries risks of, of, of being caught, um, is expensive, et cetera, et cetera. We have now, in the case of heroin or opium, so finessed scientifically, technologically, in a way that no human society has ever finessed before to turn this into minute quote, quantities that cannot be stopped, that will always be with us, uh, just as the internet cannot be uninvented. And these are massive, they, they, they're almost designed to tap into human weakness, our very human weakness. The internet and social media taps into our primal interest in gossip. And, uh, and obviously, opium has been around and people have enjoyed it and loved it for thousands of years. Um, Thomas Jefferson was growing his own uh, in Monticello. Uh, so my, feet, my worry is that we've become too smart for our own good. There's, there comes a point in human history when our brains have so outpaced our natures mm. that we are in an incredibly dangerous environment. And, and maybe you're completely right about that. But I find, and, and in this age of Trump, when I'm asked to make predictions about things, I find myself increasingly reluctant to do it because I don't want to adapt the attitude of the spectator. Um, I, I want to be a participant. And when you say, it, is it inevitable that people will have these addictions? Is it inevitable that the uh, animosities in the society will get ever more intense? They're ever more exploited? Is it inevitable that we will have one after another of these TV demagogues who rises to power, corroding institutions? Yeah, that is a future. That's a future. But like, like Ebenezer Scrooge, I think we're seeing the vision of things that may be, not the visions of things that must be. Uh, and thank you. I, I'm glad you agree. I mean, it's, it doesn't Pockets. Have, well, pockets of the pockets. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> take it, you know. Uh, uh, you, it, these things often happen with just a few. Remember the story of, of, of Gideon in the Bible, where he starts with an army of 10,000 and it's progressively reduced by a series of tests, a smaller group, because that's all you need sometimes is a smaller group of people who really care. And that, I mean, the thing we have lived through, you don't have to go back to the temperance movement of the 19th century. Mothers Against Drunk Driving has been the most successful pressure group of my lifetime. You can, I, I sometimes, when I think about how are Americans going to cope with um, the terrible toll of guns and especially gun accidents, um, I think it's going to be a similar thing, which just says it doesn't really, you know, the gun laws, they are important, but what, what really is important is that people understand that if you have a gun in the house to protect your family because you're a conscientious person, be a more conscientious person, get it out of the house. Um, and, and just do that yourself. 
Do that yourself. Um, it, and, and with Donald Trump and his challenge to American democracy, I, again, I want to be a participant in this and say, it may not be enough just to resolve to be a better citizen, but do that anyway and then see what happens. Because people are doing that. It's inspiring. It's exciting. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that it can make a difference. At least it can be kind of a break on the dark forces where important parts of American society are saying, we, we have things we value. We, don't, we are losing confidence. We can achieve them democratically. We're not going to stop valuing those things. So we're going to try to find other ways of achieving them than by doing them democratically. Well, uh, on that note, I want to open the conversation to all of you because this, we, we've been talking about really the, the failure of conversation. We've, we've been talking about the, the desperate need for norms of conversation that guide us to happier and wiser places. And I view my podcast in general and, and events like this as the best way I can attempt to make sense in as wide a, a way as possible. Uh, and so the, the, the real value for me in an event like this is to actually be in the room with all of you so that you, we get a chance to ha turn this into a proper conversation. So please, the two mics should be appearing somewhere. If we could have the house lights come up and we will, um, we will hear from you. And I, as an experiment, as a psychological experiment, I would like you all who are not asking questions to notice how judgmental you get of the people asking questions. And try to just dial that down uh, by at least 50%. And you, if, 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 they don't, if, if what they say doesn't actually end in a question mark, you can be judgmental, but it, it's, it's hard to ask a question. And I need the house lights up a little bit more because I can't actually see. So we'll start over here if, if you're at the mic. Yep. I'm uh, half drunk, so please be okay. not so judgmental. Okay, yeah. Mr. Frum, my uh, question is for you. Uh, before I pick on you, I do want to pay you a compliment, and this compliment actually applies to everybody here. Uh, I appreciate any journalist that values honesty over their own career. So you guys are all awesome. Yeah, um, Mr. Frum, uh, on, on your first appearance on Waking Up... Just get a little further from the mic. Oh, it's, it's attacking you or you're attacking it. <laughs> On your first appearance on Waking Up, you kind of had a throwaway comment where you mentioned that your opinion on the legalization of marijuana has evolved. Um, I was wondering how your opinion has evolved and then uh, what caused it to evolve. Oh, um, for smoking marijuana, but I don't, I'm, I'm against legalization. Um, and I, uh, I think it is... I, I think it is, uh, it's, it is a dangerous signal to, spend, to send. I mean, Andrew Witt was talking about this, how we are, um, we, are, we are giving people opium dreams instead of meaningful lives. Um, and I, 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 it pains me to think that we live in a society where we say to people, and especially young men, because young men smoke marijuana at much higher rates than, than women do, um, that we, we can't give you meaningful work. Uh, it's going to be difficult for you to find a family, but... There's all the internet porn and marijuana and video games you want, and you, you can have that as a substitute for life. Do you think alcohol should no, be let illegal? Me, let, me, let me just make a couple points. Uh, being alone and dying alone of a heroin overdose is very, very different than weed. Uh, and because weed actually brings people together, 
It is a communal thing. It, 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 it's always a social thing. It's always a social thing. It's also a wonderful thing to, to actually, it, it creates an atmosphere in which you are bonded with other people. It also is one of the few things in this society which unites people of very different backgrounds, different races, different regions, uh, in a way that provides a, 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 a warm and healthy uh, and... See, I, I, I do believe in pleasure. Uh, I, I support people's uh, right and indeed duty to... Not duty, but... <laughs> sometimes you do need it. I mean, you really do. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's something that does not detract from life. It enhances it. And I think that, I certainly think that people should not be forbidden or made criminal uh, what they do in that, that, that function. And I'm very proud of DC for doing what we did and uh, made the entire country follow. Uh, and it hasn't led to all the consequences that you worry about. Well, I understand your worries and I think they're completely legitimate, but when the evidence is that they have not come to pass, uh, when teenage drug use is actually declining, uh, when there have not been more drunk driving accidents, when there's, when there's been many fewer li lives ruined. Uh, it feels to me like the gay marriage debate, in which everybody said it was going to be the end of the world, and it isn't, it hasn't been. Uh, this is something to be proud of as a society, not something to be, to be scared of. I, I, won't, I won't extend the, the, the argument just on that last analogy. I, I, don't, I think it is more like the debate about lowering the drinking age to 18 which we did for a time, mm -hmm. we saw what happened, and then we raised it back again. I, again, I, I don't think it should be a crime. No one Teenage should use has declined since decriminalization in all the states that you it know, has been. It's, it's, it's up in Colorado, and again, we don't want to... It hasn't. And, and it's up also, and what I'm, I really worry it's up in the form of these, these consumables. Um, I, think we, and this, I think we need... We need, to give, we need to find ways to provide people with real meaning. And meaning comes from accomplishment, from work, from family, from love. And, and I, I don't know, your experience with it may be different. I think, but I, it does, that, that, that we do live in an increasingly isolated society. And, and the fact that, that this is a priority, not finding ways to work and extend life expectancy, that really bothers me. Mm. Well, as much as I'm a champion of the power of conversation, I'm going to cut this particular conversation short. We're not going to resolve this here, but I think this is, this is a fascinating debate, and it's obviously something we, we should talk about. Move over here. Hi, Sam. Uh, for most of the evening, it's been kind of a love fest up there. You guys have been agreeing on a lot of things, so I'd like to interject a little bit of discord hmm? uh, on the subject of religion. Um, uh, Andrew, you and I share a friend, Rod Greer. Uh, I went to high school with him in his recent book, The Benedict Option. Uh, I agree with actually a lot of his critiques of uh, current society, and uh, they're shared by many of you on the stage. Uh, but I think that his prescription is he's actually advocating theocracy. And um, right now we have a large Christian coalition uh, that's now even Mormons are considered Christians. Um, but eventually, if the Christians take power, that will fracture again, and he and his Orthodox friends will be looking at you as a gay uh, Catholic and saying, you got to go. So my question is, um, uh, how would you articulate your differences with Rod uh, other than, say, uh, on, on sexual politics? Uh, 
I love the modern world. He hates it. Um, and that's one fundamental disagreement. I also believe that the truth about the world, whether that be a metaphysical truth or a real truth, endures and is not going to be destroyed by a changing society. That if your faith is, is real and deep, it's not going to be affected by the broader world around you. Uh, it will endure. And it may have to be re-understood. And it may have to be reimagined. There's a certain language involved in, certain, in Christian orthodoxy that I think is obscuring what Christianity is really saying. Uh, the, the ways in which the underlying message of the Gospels is still so important and so liberating uh, as a way of life has become lost in this insistence on orthodoxy and on everything that has always ever been, even though it hasn't always ever been this way. I mean, I think that orthodoxy is to religion what ideology is to politics. And that real politics and real religion happens when you leave those behind. And you experience the world and you experience your faith in a, in a powerful way. And that also means, if you are a Christian, the lack of any desire to force anybody to behave or to do things or to believe things that they don't want to do themselves. Uh, that is, to me, crucial. And the idea that we, ha we can police the world into believing in certain things and use the power of government or law to enforce it is evil. Evil. Uh, now, the question is, uh, how do you reinvent it and reimagine it? And that's something I've been wrestling with for many years uh, in my own life and attempting to do intellectually, and that's what I'm writing a book on. I'm trying to, I'm trying to reimagine what Christianity could be today. A Christianity that's not afraid of the modern world, but sees every human being as a, 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 a creation of God and worth, worth, worth loving. These are, these, these are, Jesus was a very simple preacher. And just, it's the way. It's not necessarily the orthodoxy. And that's, that's what I would say. And, and, and uh, yeah, but theocracy is always there. It always will be. Um, but so is ideology, and so are other ways of coercing people to do what they don't want to do. Here's something I worry about with religion in the age of Trump. If you were writing about American society in the later 1990s, what you would see is America has a religious experience completely unlike that of all the other developed countries. Um, uh, in most countries, very low levels of belief and observance. In America, at least very high levels of belief, if not necessarily of observance. In the 21st century, uh, the proportion of Americans who profess no religious belief skyrocketed. Um, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but uh, when, um, when you would hear people in the, tw in the 2000s say that Islam is the fastest growing religion in America, that was only because they did not count no religion as, the fa as a religion. If you did, that was by far the fastest growing. And when you look at those, when you look at those numbers, you would say, so what's happening here? Um, is something changing or what was it always true? And people are bringing their, 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 their stated beliefs into line with their actual beliefs. A lot of people who would be vaguely religious or felt it was an important thing to do, but who actually were not religious at all, were now saying, you know, I've been driven away from it. And so to your question about um, these strong statements of orthodoxy and the, and the increasing alignment of 
evangelical religion with Donald Trump, the least Christian president of the United States ever. Um, that He's a pagan. I, I, I worry that America's in danger of going through a sort of a, a very radical and rapid de-Christianization where a lot of people who are loosely Christian are going to say, I want nothing, no part of it. And societies, just as they need work, this part of this and family, part of the structure of meaning for most people is participation in a religious community, which is maybe even more important than, than religious belief to having a fulfilling life. And that's being lost day by day. You're seeing this de-affiliation. It's, it's really, it frightens me. And part of it is the extreme demands that are being made and, these, and, and religious teachings that are not, that are not where people are. Um, but I, I don't think um, there may be people here who welcome this disaffiliation. I, I find it a deeply ominous and, and worrying development. And it's one of the things that makes Donald Trump very uh, people like impossible because it leaves people more alone. I, I want to agree with that. And so far as Christianity has now become another tribal identity associated with one political party, it has completely destroyed itself, destroyed its credibility and destroyed its integrity. And that has happened. Uh, I also think that the community aspect is vital. I do think that some of the pathologies we're seeing in our society, the isolation, the feeling that if, you don't, if you're not forever having an increasing standard of living, your life does not have meaning, uh, the opioid epidemic is, is in some ways a search for some meaning and in the, in, the, in the absence of it, an attempt to make yourself feel better without it. And I wish, Sam, <laughs> that... I'm ready. <laughs> I've had 10 years to prepare for this. <laughs> last debate. I just wish people did not so easily express contempt for people who... Have, have meaning in their lives that is related to their own metaphysical understanding of the world uh, and, and attempt to live that in community with each other. And I think uh, treating anybody who is genuinely seeking the truth with contempt uh, is counterproductive and, and, and wrong. Well, let me, let me respond. I take it as the implication that you think I have done that or do that, and, and what I do, I'll grant you, can sometimes be mistaken for that, but it's not, in fact, what I do. It's, I, I treat certain ideas with contempt because I think they're both patently false and incredibly harmful. So they're, like, when that combination... Uh, when, when ideas combine in that way, then I get very worried and, and impatient. But I completely agree with both of you that there is a crisis of meaning at the center of all of our lives, and we were born into this world in, in a circumstance that is, in some ways, starkly hostile to the fulfillment of our desires. And we have very few tools to navigate in this space that are appropriate to our circumstance. And the, and the tools need to continually be improved in light of all of the gains we make, ethically and politically and intellectually, scientifically, the reason why I am, will always be opposed to religious dogmatism, and when I wanna, what I mean by, or any dogmatism, but in, in this case religious, is that it is the, the parts of uh, the human conversation that are inflexible 
to change. They're non-negotiable. They're not revisable. They're not editable. And that is the wrong software program for us to be running right now, uh, to use a metaphor that will one day be show its age. So I, you know, I completely agree with you that we want to maximize the feeling of love and connection, and we want community, and we want, we want the institutions that, that maximize the possibility of community. And I'll, I'll grant you that religion is that for some people, some time, but it comes with this massive downside of this legacy code that is causing people to make you know, delusional claims where, where good claims are available. You know, and they're, and they're, when it causes them to be good, when it, when it does cause you know, someone like you know, Martin Luther King Jr. to be good and heroic, well, there, were, there are better reasons to be good and heroic than to believe that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus is his son, right? So we can find better reasons. And, but, the, but the common project of finding meaning why in the present it, moment... Why are these better reasons rather than different reasons? Well, because they're, they're reasons that are truly defensible. You don't have to believe any bullshit to have them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you rarely express contempt for religious people. Well, no, 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 but, no, but please, uh, I am not express, expressing contempt for you at all. I, I, you know, you, you are someone I'm, I'm who I a, love a, to talk to. I'm because... an anti-dogmatist, I am. Um, but I don't think human life can be founded entirely on reason. I don't. Well, I think well, most but, of it should be. But me, I think but at before, some point before you I misunderstand you, though, let me just translate that back into my language, because it, when you say it, it can't be founded entirely on reason. I will grant you that in the sense that there's more to life than understanding the world. There's more to, there's more to life than not being wrong about in your propositional claims to knowledge. So love is not just being reasonable, and, and community is not just being reasonable, and having fun is not just being reasonable. But none of those projects require that we be wrong to pursue them, or that we lie to ourselves to pursue them, or that we be unscientific. You don't have to be irrational to, have, to fall in love or to have fun or to get what you want out of life. So it's, it's, that's the crucial conflation here. I, I don't here. think you think, well, maybe this is, I don't want to prevent other people speaking, but no. I, I, don't, I think of myself as a reasonably rational, rational person, but there are some things that are beyond reason. And if people seek to understand those or seek to experience those in a manner that human beings have always done from the beginning of time, uh, then I'm not going to treat them with contempt. Uh, I'm going to value their experience. I'm going to value the truths, and I'm going to value the way of life that may come out of it. And that goes for the, a huge majority of Christians. It goes for a huge majority of Muslims. Uh, it goes for a huge majority of many people of faith. And, and that's an integral part of what it means to be human, I think. But if I, but if I told you that we were, if we could just, we had a time machine here, and we could fast forward 100 years and discovered that we actually, humanity outgrows its religious provincialism at some point. So that there's no longer, like we, grow, we outgrow nationalism, we outgrow racism, obviously, we outgrow other forms of tribalism, and we outgrow this, so that spiritual people no longer call themselves Christian or Muslim or Jew. And there's just, we just talk about the fact that we have, con- we have, we have consciousness and we have conversation, and it gets better and better. And we've learned to pay attention to the present moment in ways that, it, that are truly 
validating of everything you you want, I mean, the, the juice in, in the religion. But there's no more labels. are doing that than you we, give them credit for. One, one sentence okay. on this, not to prolong this again, but, yeah, yeah. you know, spirituality is part of the human brain. People will always be spiritual. That's just the way we're organized. Will he, people always, Will there always be people who will voluntarily go clean bedpans of the sick? And Do you think those people are mostly religious now and doing I think, it for religious I think reasons? Over the long span of human history, the thing that has sent people to sacrifice for others has been re- not spirituality, but religious community. And maybe people will find other ways to do it, but maybe they won't. And maybe well, you don't but, 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 but just look at an organization like Médecins Sans Frontières, right? It's, a, it's an explicitly secular group that's right next to a religious group, but they're doing it for different reasons. And I mean, clearly you can find in our common humanity can. a reason to alleviate I, I just, human suffering. And I think as we, again, not to extend this, but as, as we... As we confront the society we confront, you can, but don't be so confident that you will. Well, I, I just think we must, because we have, we'll keep paying the price for our dogmatism. But, so yeah. I'll, I would just, here, uh, yeah. if you could uh, have Jeff Hawkins on the podcast. Okay, thank you. He's been suggested before, and I, I know him. Yeah. Over here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. I, uh, my girlfriend and I have been reading a lot of Cold War history recently, and uh, we were really... This is a question for you, David. Um, I know you were friends with uh, Christopher Hitchens and with a lot of the folks at Commentary Magazine and Weekly Standard. And I was wondering, um, just, just a quick couple points about that. Um, Hitchens wrote a book that was critical of Kissinger. And I, was, and I know traditionally, but with the neoconservatives and the Kissinger Scowcroft folks kind of butted heads on a lot of issues during the Cold War. And I was thinking, for example, like Kissinger advised Ford not to meet with Solzhenitsyn and stuff like that. The question is, do you agree with some of what Hitchens had to say about Kissinger? And what would, do you have any comments on that book? Oh, um, thank you. Um, I... I would not put myself at the front of the Henry Kissinger fan club. Uh, I think that um, he, he, he had great accomplishments, um, but the, the cynicism that he brought to many things and um, above all the dysfunctions of his relationship with, with Richard Nixon did a lot of harm. Um, I think particularly, I mean, the, the, one of the hardest parts of his legacy to cope with is um, the green light that was given by the United States would happen in what is now Bangladesh, um, in 1971, that seems to have been that was motivated by very abstract Cold War considerations. Um, I think, and I think um, the the Allende chapter is is a, is a black mark. Uh, the United States should have been more confident that Chile would. I mean, I have no brief for Allende. Um, I, he, and I, there were Cuban agents there, and there there were attempts to overthrow the constitutional order in Chile. But that constitutional order needed to be defended, not overthrown even deeper and faster um, with tremendous cost in, in human life. Um, the fact that the United States and Chile today have a friendly and successful relationship is a uh, you know, real credit to the Chileans because they, they, have, they have a lot to be angry at the United States about. Thank you so much. But would you, would you describe him as a war criminal? No. No, I don't think I would do that. And I think it's self-evident that he is. 
Why? Uh, is there a correlation between pot use and thinking he's a war criminal? <laughs> I'm trying to divide our Dude. disagreements here. Uh, yeah, probably. Um, but <laughs> no, I just think the mass murder of, of innocent civilians in Laos alone, mm -hmm. I think the continuation of the Vietnam War, when it was clear it couldn't yeah. be won. Uh, I, 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 did I you see Ken Burns' yeah. uh, recent Ken documentary? Ken Burns' documentary, yeah. really, I mean, I was glad to watch it. I thought, I mean, I've read, obviously, a lot about the Vietnam War. Yeah. To see that documentary and to realize just how the entire war was a war crime. Uh, and yeah. Can't go with you there. And just as Bush and Cheney are definitionally war criminals, uh, uh, who, who set I, I, up a torture, torture regime unlike any in the history of the United States or the West. You're, uh, you're, you're, taking, is, you're taking words to mean things they, they don't mean. And what you're going to do is create, in a sense, uh, you're, uh, a world in which... Everyone who prosec prosecutes, or as Nixon did, inherits um, a war that is not won, that is not won, be becomes a, a monster. I don't, you know, that wars are No, I don't are, think so. I think wars, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. Things. I think the wars can be fought and should be fought on many occasions. Um, however, I think when you know the war is going to, is, is futile, and you bomb people in another country and murder thousands and thousands of innocent people with no regard for their lives, you are a war criminal. Uh, and and it, there should be at least some public stigmatization of that, it seems to me. Uh, I think we've discovered at least three debates that we could have at the next event. So I'm gonna, we're going to table that topic for now and go to the next question. Thank you guys yeah. for coming. Um, Sam, I brought your book Lying Here for you to sign. And the conclusion of that book brings up a question for me and all of you guys mm -hmm. to answer. Um, who do you think or what type of candidate do you think would be the best to run against Donald Trump the next election cycle? And most importantly, how do, you, <laughs> how do you have a debate or even argue with someone who's so prone to even lying or just misinformation in general? Well, I, I mean, that's been the most shocking and depressing aspect of the whole Trump phenomenon, which is that, that there's just been not only no consequence to lying more than any person in human history, it's actually, it's worked. It's actually become a, a feature, not a bug. It's become a way of just saying, fuck you em emphatically to the, the people who care about the truth. And I think this might be something you say in your book at some point. It's just, it's kind of the naked expression of power over truth. I'm so powerful and I'm so just riding the right wave at the right moment that there's no consensus reality that can stand in my way. And so, and, and that's, I think that the thing that we have to walk back first politically and socially is this norm of, insofar as we ever had real purchase on it, this norm of really caring about an effort to be truthful. I mean, when, you're, when you say something that's, that turns out to be wrong, well, then you can correct an honest error. There's no problem there, and pe people should want to do that. But I think honesty is the most important ethical commitment that we can make, really. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's the, the first thing that you commit to that then closes the door to every other type of horrific misbehavior that destroys relationships and reputations, or, or in, in another parallel universe does destroy reputations. Apparently, it's not here. Um, 
to, somebody threw, shouted it out as a joke, but it's true. Oprah probably would be Donald Trump. Um, that's an observation that should give all of us pause because. <laughs> Because it, it underscores how much the, the question that needs to be answered now is not who, but what. And not how do you win an election, but what do you do after. Um, how do you, um, you know, Andrew very eloquently praised uh, President Obama. And he has his accomplishments, obviously, as presidents do. Um, but on... <laughs> but, but on... This question, did he leave behind a healthier country? I, I think you have to say he did not. That he did not leave behind a healthier country. He did not. Well, but that, that's because, at, at minimum, you have to say that Trump is part of his legacy. It's more in, in the most literal sense of the true of the term, it's not true. It is a sicker country. It is a country that is dying earlier than it was dying at the beginning of his presidency. Um, but it's also that it, it, it is more uh, that these that these things we've been talking about today. Um, and he had, you know, there are things he did, uh, but there, the, these things went unaddressed. And I'm not going to make that a personal criticism of him in, um, at this point, but what I want to say is when you're thinking about what do you want your future politics to look like, I think you want it to ad address these deep issues. If you, had, if you had a stronger society, it would be more resistant to Donald Trump. If you had a stronger society, when people who are secure and comfortable and, and for whom the system works, says we must defend these norms and institutions. That for a lot of people for whom the system does, we're right when we say that. I'm not going to say, you know, I don't believe that the people say, well, it doesn't matter to somebody who's got these other problems. That, that, that It does, it should, it will, but they may not see it immediately. But if they're going to be vested into the system, they also have to, um, they have to see some more immediate benefits. And I, I think uh, that the politics of the future um, that will be effective is a bigger question than who can be um, the most effective candidate. Could, great candidates are not always great presidents. I, I just want to say something that I, I don't think any president really has the power to transform a society in quite the way that some people thought Obama might or to overcome the structural forces that we're talking about. But when so many more people have access to health insurance, when we have actually, it was a period in which the economics of climate change and preventing it shifted decisively in its favor. As a gay person, life after Obama is a damn sight better than it was before. Uh, I, and I also think in the long run, what he meant for African-Americans who have been so uniquely and brutally shut out of... American democracy in so many ways uh, was profound and will resonate in the future. Uh, I do think that Trump, Trump in a way, was a, res a, re a response to Obama's success, not his failure. Okay, over here. My question is for Ben Stiller. <laughs> I never saw that before. I, want to, I, have a friend, I, I have a friend who uh, looks about as much like John Malkovich as I look like Ben Stiller. 
And uh, first, I, I, I never thought I looked like Ben Stiller, and I was getting this a lot early on when he was becoming very famous. And I, I went and saw the film Mystery Men. And I spent the first 30 minutes thinking, I don't fucking look like Ben Stiller. <laughs> and then at like thir- minute 31, something snapped into place in my brain, and I literally could not get my face off the screen. It was just like a bad after trip. So I know I know what you mean, but so I, but I would, this is just a, a completely random story taking up all your your precious time. But I was sit, sitting with a friend in a cafe in Rome and talking about someone had just recognized him as John Malkovich, and I was and so we're talking about this, and he said, you know, you don't look like Ben Stiller. And I said, well, you know, you don't really look like John Malkovich. And at that moment, John Malkovich sat down behind him. So over his shoulder, I'm now staring into John Malkovich's face. So that's just how strange a world we live in. So go on. I was trying to lighten the mood. This this question is pretty bleak. So Sam, you've argued that we will inevitably make the breakthrough to strong, super intelligent AI, regardless of our pace of progress. Given that some of the largest companies, banks, and even nations today suffer cybersecurity breaches, data leaks, and other mishaps that are only caught once the consequences have begun, what hope is there that we can both solve the control problem and ensure that no future renegade or terrorist engineer develops their own AGI outside of the constraints of the control problem? Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's a question that if, if I had a persuasive answer for it, I, I, I would spread it far and wide. It's a huge problem, and I think it's, it's a huge problem because so many people in the field are denying that it's a problem. With nuclear weapons, no one... We, we still botched the, the spread of nuclear weapons, and we, and we still didn't deal with the safety issues in, in, in the way that we should have, but there was, a, there was no point where people deluded themselves uh, in thinking that there was no possible downside to nuclear weapons. I mean, they, they, they advertised their destructive capacity uh, on their face. And with artificial intelligence, it's the opposite. It's, it's, this is clearly the best thing that we're ever going to invent. And that may, in fact, be true if we do it correctly. But the possibility of things going wrong is, is there, and it's widely denied. And I'm just, you know, I'm going to be at a conference in a couple of weeks organized by... Um, Amazon and debating someone on the other side of this issue. So that, you, know, you can find roboticists and AI people who will debate this. But strangely, the people who are closest to doing this work, people like you know, companies like DeepMind, who are, you know, if anyone's going to get the ball into the end zone in some near future, it, it will be uh, them. They don't deny the problem. I mean, they, they obfuscate, I think, in other ways. And it's, I'm not convinced that they're taking all of the ethical and safety concerns as seriously as they should, but they're, the people who are closest to doing this work are fairly sober in their, their sense of, of just how much progress we can make in a very short time frame. And so it's, I think it's, there's so many levels to this, and I've now done a couple of podcasts on it, and I recommend that you read Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, as a primer on this problem. But in some ways, good AI can be the solution for bad AI, and there's kind of now there's an arms race in this field. But... It's, it's, it's a real problem, and I, I don't think we have a... We don't see any daylight on it right now. So, so score one for the team pessimist, right? Well, yeah, but again, the flip side is we're talking about... I mean, the, so the, the, hu- the hugely hopeful picture here is... And, and if you really want to get deep into this picture, you read David Deutsch's book, The Beginning of Infinity, 
you can condense his book down to more or less a sentence, but he then justifies this sentence over the course of 400 fairly thrilling pages. <laughs> it's that anything that is not ruled out by the laws of nature is possible given the, the requisite knowledge. You can literally go into the vacuum of space and with the right knowledge begin sweeping up stray hydrogen atoms and fuse them into heavier elements and build with those elements the smallest possible machine that can build any other machine, including its, itself, including a human body, including sentient beings like ourselves are vastly more intelligent than ourselves. The only thing standing in the way here is knowledge and slash intelligence. And so if we were talking about making breakthroughs in AI that become superhuman, and again, unless there's something magic about having a computer made of meat, this is possible, and we will so get there. So you're actually with... conceding that God could come into existence? Well, yeah, I did say that's, that's how I ended this, this very pessimistic TED Talk, where I said, you know, we, we have to admit that we are in the process of creating a God. I forget what the last line was, but something like, perhaps it should be one we can live with. Good, you another asterisk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I prefer a God that could, ex could, could actually experience mercy insofar as we understand mercy, we will want to design it into these machines that are far more powerful than we are. Because uh, at the moment, they have no mercy when playing chess. They no, just win. Thank you all for being here. Thanks. Um, my question is for all three of you, um, or whoever would like to answer. Um, it seems like throughout history, little does more to unite an otherwise divided population than to be attacked by an outside power. And as everyone in this room, I'm sure, knows, uh, our intelligence community is in agreement that we were attacked by Russia and their affiliates. So the question is this, uh, to what extent uh, do Trump's financial ties or incompetence or desire to feel legitimate sufficiently explain a political opportunity that great um, to, to the foregoing of, of that opportunity? David, you want to? Well, um, it is unfortunately not true that, that foreign threats always create national unity. In fact, that, that one of the things that obsessed the authors of the American Constitution and that haunts um, both the uh, constitutional debate in 1787 um, and the Federalist Papers is the memory that republics are particularly prone to have foreign powers intervene in their affairs. Um, they were, the authors of the Constitution were hugely worried about this. And indeed, when impeachment is discussed, in Philadelphia, in the Madison records, it comes up explicitly again and again, twice, in the context of a foreign polity intervening, especially to touch the president and to bend, but corruptly bend him to its will. Um, it's, so it's, it's uh, I, I don't think that the Pearl Harbor memory, first, we misremember it. The country was not quite as united after Pearl Harbor um, as, as we would like to believe, as certainly as it was after the war turned out to be successful. Um, had it gone badly, there are a lot of people who tell you that Franklin Roosevelt was a war criminal. Um, he won, so he's not. But uh, it is, um, it, it, this, is a this is a vulnerability in our society. And um, Donald Trump has benefited from it. At a minimum, he's benefited from it, and the Russians understand it, and they are using it, and not just against the United States, but against so many of our friends. Um, and uh, we need, we shouldn't assume that that spirit of unity will be there. It is something we have to actively develop. So we're down to the last 10 minutes or so, so I'm just going to keep, we'll try to be as fast as possible over here. Uh, okay, I'd like to apologize for the naive uh, political pie-in-the-sky question, but um, 
I'll ask a question and elaborate very briefly. Uh, okay, so uh, now what? Strategically speaking, uh, we spent a large part of tonight, a lot of the podcasts I listened to uh, from you, Sam, we diagnose 90% of the time. What about the treatment? Right. Have you thoughts on what the treatment is? What, how do we uh, amalgamate ourselves into a piece of force to solve the problems, political problems that we're talking about, right? And I don't mean just... Simply, you, you know Democrat in the coming election. Well, so, yeah, and actually... <laughs> simple step. Well, and you make sure everybody you know does the same thing. To, and to my, show up. I, what I would like to actually elaborate on that is I actually don't mean how do we get rid of Trump. We all agree, yeah, bad move, right? But isn't he kind of the animated apotheosis of the problem? Well, and how yeah. do you defend against that problem going forward? Because we just have another one of those if we don't, if so, we don't focus ourselves. I, I so agree with you. And, and it, indeed, one of the temptations for people who oppose Donald Trump will be to say, if you can't beat him, copy him. Uh, hence the Oprah enthusiasm. I mean, I'm sure she's a much nicer and obviously more competent person. Um, better hair. Uh, but I would say, look, obviously, if, if um, the Democrats have, if the Republicans lose control of one house of Congress and there are some Democratic gavels, some things will come to light that otherwise wouldn't. But to my way of thinking, what the country most needs, the real answer, is as happened in the 1880s, in the 1910s, and other moments in American history, is you get these political movements that are, um, that are present within both parties. Um, as the uh, as the capital P progressives were before the First World War, say you know we we, we what is needed here is we um, is an agenda that is responsive to the concerns of the people who've been left behind, the losers of globalization, that deals with their healthcare needs, that deals with the stresses of immigration and diversity, um, that deals with national unity, that deals with uh, security in an age in which big wars are going to become very uncommon, but cyber, constant cyber attacks are, are more normal. Um, and that those people discover that they have, they have competing versions of the ideas, um, but that they can also work in some commonality and they change both parties, because what we have had till now is an arms race of ever more extreme political behavior. I would date it to the end of the Cold War, um, where the parties are more ruthless with one another, they're more polarized. And, and the big problem for those of you who are Democrats is that the, the, probably the, the most tactically sensible Democratic strategy for 2018 and 2020 is to become as radical as possible, to, mo to build up mobilization inside key Democratic constituencies. And that's the worst possible answer to governing the country in a stable way thereafter. Uh, and that, that, that the, the conflict between the tactical and strategic for that party will become a moral and constitutional problem for the rest of the country. You have our attention, so maybe you oh, I, I would just add that, that I think, I mean, we've touched on the solution at many points. We have to anchor ourselves to norms of conversation that render everything, no matter how seemingly scary, divisive, formerly taboo, discussable. And we have to be able to talk about anything, and we have to be able to extend enough charity to other honest interlocutors to hear them out and not convict them of ulterior motives that they won't admit to and not fragment into to identity politics where it's your truth versus my truth and the only definition of truth there is what club you belong to by virtue of skin color or sexual orientation or anything else. And I'm perfectly prepared to believe that 
Andrew and I could converge given enough time to talk about any of the issues that divide us, and so it is with David, and so it is with the two of them. And if, they, if we didn't converge, we could come to some understanding of different intuitions that were foundational for us on different points, and we could find some workaround that still maintained goodwill and a common project of peaceful collaboration and would be completely bereft of any kind of demonizing and, and real partisanship. And that's what, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I something yeah. That because this, this is going to be actually a difference. And, and this, this is actually sort of the basis we're, we're of We're now going to disagree about whether well, we maybe, ever... But this, is, this is going to be the, a key to how I think about these issues. I, I don't think the goal in politics is to converge. Um, I think it's, you know... If, you, if, you, don't, you don't think it is? Or it is not. Okay. So if, if you were told that Comcast and Time Warner have decided to lay aside their differences and work together to create the best possible cable system for all Americans, <laughs> you would understand that's probably not going to go well for no, you. But they could agree on a framework in which they can compete fairly. Exactly. It is not to make to banish differences. It's to create frameworks by which differences get arbitrated by democratic vote, right. um, and that the parties are, are given incentives to present the best versions of themselves. Because at some level, you know, more government, more government services at higher cost, less government services at lower cost, that's a choice. Um, and we don't want to blur it, you want to sharpen it. But you want it to be done in a way that's ethical, that's honest, without foreign intervention, subject to constitutional rules, and where the, the, the owners of the country, the voters, get ultimately to make the decision in a, to give, be given meaningful choice. But meaningful choice about, which, not on policies, because that's unworkable, but between which set of, you know, of political actors will well, get we, to implement we, we the program. To, we have to shift so that we're happy to find someone who disagrees with us. It's kind of a yeah. way to find yeah. out what might be true. And yeah. we also have to... I, the metaphor I would use is that if you're playing tennis and, and a true liberal democracy is a friendly game, you're not actually trying to win. You just keep popping it over the net each time. Maybe you win some point, but you're not even really keeping score. And this will go on forever. It's like a good conversation. A good conversation is not designed to win the argument. It is to enjoy the exchange uh, and that is, that is understanding ourselves as citizens in a liberal democracy. And that's what's being lost. And that's what we have to regain. Mm. So here. Yes, thank you. Uh, this question is for Sam. It's actually about the William McCaskill podcast. Um, even though I thought he brilliantly sort of reframed Singer's Shallow Pond, I still find myself feeling a little guilty when I buy my NBA league pass or buy an expensive croissant. Um, I think I legitimately enjoy these things, but the sort of granular level of happiness I achieve seems inconsequential compared to the sort of $200 give directly donation. Um, given that sustainability is sort of part of McCaskill's uh, ethic and that this sort of micromanaging and constant self-audit is sort of hard to recommend, how do you, as a sort of wealthier person with resources, navigate these sorts of issues? Obviously, there's a role for a personal ethical code and making these sort of micro-personal recalibrations where you decide to spend your dollar one way or the other that seems more ethical to you. But I, I really do think that ultimately, and I've said this before, ultimately the biggest gains for us in terms of our collective morality and our collective well-being will be 
system-wide and institutional. And so, for instance, yes, it's one thing for all of us to decide whether factory farming is so horrible that we must immediately become vegetarian. And I think that, that obviously you can make that case, but it would be much, much better if a, an alternative to eating factory farmed meat that was truly ethical emerged and went to scale. And so to take that local example, you have something like Clean Meat, which is you know, this, now this tiny startup, you know, like a company like Memphis Meats, whose CEO I had on the podcast. I mean, they've got like an $18,000 meatball that has now become, I think, a $6,000 meatball. But eventually it'll be a 60-cent meatball and not entail any suffering of any conscious creature. And, and that's, that will be great. And then that relieves you of the burden of waking up tomorrow morning feeling like St. Francis of Assisi committed to the well-being of all creatures. But, but I think we play that game, we've, we play it at both levels, but I, I think the real gains will be made system-wide where we have just new norms of behavior and new, a new alignment of incentives and a new tax code and all the rest. Thank you. Uh, and let me say thank to all of you for being champions of free expression, especially given a lot of recent uh, events on college campuses and elsewhere. I'll start with you, Mr. Sullivan. All of you are free to comment on this. How do you feel about the notion that there are different ways for presidential administrations to be damaging? It's, it's simply not enough to say that Donald Trump is a repellent figure and that he's cruel, which is true. But maybe you disagree. I think his administration, any administration, might be hard-pressed to repeat the damage that the George W. Bush administration did with the desecration of patriotism, the invasion of Iraq on lies, torture, rendition, and the incalculable suffering that has been uh, faced by the people of the Middle East based on that war. Okay, well, Yet, at the same we'll time, take, we'll Donald that, Trump... We'll take that as your question. Okay. I, I'm sorry, i got to cut you off because sure, we're, yeah, we're sure. down to our I'm last sorry, minute. Mr. Harris, but so, yeah, the did, Trump assault on the very nature of truth is a different way of, okay. of, of damaging did, our democracy. Different ways to harm, uh, or did, did it answer itself? I do think that anything that, that weakens the core institutions that, that make our society function as a liberal democracy is, is, a, is a more corrosive and deeper kind of damage. And I think the, the core damage to the, to the discourse that this, this person uh, does every day, the way he, he is sacrilege to any idea of a decent America, and he is destroying very clearly a, a huge number of things that America has created, especially internationally. I mean, the, the international alliances that we built, the notion that democracies can come together, the notion that we don't think of autocratic regimes as absolutely even better than democratic regimes. Uh, these things are very deep cultural, psychological, social norm uh, damage. And that, that can be very hard. To poison the discourse the way he has, to remove the guardrails and to set the precedents that he has uh, is, is deeply damaging and will deeply damage this country for decades. Uh, the Barack Obama administration stepped in after the George W. Bush administration. They looked at the Iraq experience and said, we're never doing that again. Not going to do that. Uh, so the next time there is a conflagration in the Middle East, in Syria, they say, we're going to have nothing to do. We looked at, you know, the George Bush invaded Iraq. He overthrew it. He created a lot of misery and suffering. We were going to stand back from this one. And the result was more dead, even more suffering. Um, and, and, uh, and 
in both cases, in both cases, the, the legacy looks uh, pretty easy to criticize. Um, but what both of those presidents had in common uh, was they worked according to within the American political system. They built consensus. The, the United States went into the Iraq War with votes in Congress. Um, the George, votes cast by Democrats, but votes, ca votes cast by Democrats who saw the intelligence, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry, who both voted for the authorizing resolution, the two candidates, of the, the uh, two, two presidential candidates, Barack Obama, who was not, a, was not in Congress, as opposed. Um, that is a different thing. It's, I think it was the reason why I reacted so badly when Andrew started talking about, about, about Henry Kissinger, um, that there are people who hold these positions of responsibility usually face sets of, of pretty terrible choices. Look at the choice. Imagine right now you had a more normal uh, administration facing, or look at the choices of the past administrations have faced in North Korea, um, since the North Koreans began to seriously pursue a nuclear weapon at the end of the 1980s. The George H.W. Bush administration, the Clinton administration, each successor has had to make a decision about do you stop this uh, do you stop this program with force? And the, uh, the question of whether to go to war, or prevent a war in North Korea, has been thought about very hard since 1990. And everyone has decided so far, no. And the result is that this problem has gotten worse and worse and worse, and we are very soon going to be facing a North Korean hydrogen bomb on top of a ballistic missile that may be more or less accurate, pointed toward the cities of the continental United States. Um, these decisions are... There's a, my, my favorite line about government comes... Uh, my favorite line of the movies about government comes from the movie Argo, where a plan is brought to the head of the CIA, and he looks at the plan and says, this plan is terrible. And they all agree it is. He says, do you have any other, do you have any other ideas? And they say, no, this is the best terrible idea we have. <laughs> and that's what it is like to sit in those chairs. Uh, and there's a difference between the people who sit in those chairs trying to achieve some vision of the public good. You may agree, you may disagree. Uh, it is striking how much the people who sit in those chairs, once they, sit, once they are sitting there, come, come to be sympathetic to their predecessors. Um, that how much Barack Obama came to understand, follow and implement and copy things that George W. Bush had done, came to be pr personally friendly with him to realize, my God, this, th these things are really hard. They, they don't give you the plane to solve the easy problems. But there is a very simple difference between Syria and Iraq. Iraq was a war of choice that we started. Uh, and we bear, we bear responsibility for its consequences. When did, we st when did that war start? When we launched, I mean, when... We, was a the, the thing is, that was a chapter. But no, that, no, no. That, that war, that problem had been going on since 1990. It had never really ended. The, the decision that George H.W. That George Bush made in 1990 not to actually invade Iraq and to occupy it... Uh, was, uh, was a very prudent, and Dick Cheney made at the same time, was very prudent. Clearly, the, the second thing, a war of choice, created, uh, in a sense, in a state of panic uh, and, 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 and misleading come intelligence on, uh, was different. Also, the notion that the United States could have intervened in Syria in some way to prevent what was happening there uh, is, 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 is simply boggles the mind. The idea that what we know now about what has been going on in that country could have been solved by sending thousands of GIs there as opposed to making it even worse uh, is, 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 is delusional. Delusional. The United States fought a major air war against Iraq in 1998. 
probably after, after the campaign against Serbia, the biggest Amer- commitment of American air power since the end of the Cold War. Um, that what George Bush inherited was a, 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 an unresolved end state that had been left behind by a series of wars before. Which is Just completely a, livable with. Maybe yes, maybe no. No, that, that, but, no the, but absolutely the point, but the point was livable with. In the, in the same way that every president has confronted the North Korea problem has confronted an inherited problem. And uh, I think on balance, they were probably right not to intervene preemptively against North Korea. But if a bomb goes off in an American city on, uh, uh, carried by a North Korean ICBM, those decisions from 1990 onward are going to look very different. Like, like all other governments, I'm confronted with a list of terrible and worse options right now. We have, come, we, have, we have a book signing that many of you want to go to, and that takes a long time. And I'm just going to say a few things before I take one final question to rescue us from this note of acrimony. That's, that question will be going to you, so prepare yourself. And, and if you're plunging us back into the pit, just change your question. <laughs> but first, I want to thank Andrew and David for their presence here tonight. They've been incredibly... Okay. Needless to say, I want want to thank you all for coming. But before we go to the book signing, I I want to say that all of our books are available. I would much rather you buy their books than my book. If you're economizing your book buying, there are free postcards that I'll be happy to sign. I'll be sitting sitting with these guys. So if if you just care about signatures, we can go for postcards. So final question. Thank you for a lovely evening. I'm the mayor of a liberal town in Virginia, surrounded a very conservative part of the state. And I have trouble with my party. But I have three gifts for you. You each have a magical wand, and you can choose a Democratic presidential nominee for 2020. And you probably don't want to do that, but this is D.C., and it's all about dropping names. So if you could give us three names with your three intelligent but different views, I'd appreciate it. Let me just say, I actually don't have one, and I'm just I'm waiting to be educated. I don't think I would be doing anybody a favor if I answered that question. <laughs> All right, it's down to you, Andrew. Do you have somebody other than Oprah and Keith Ellison? I, I desperately want to see another Obama-type person that you can see who has those capacities. Uh, which I saw in 2007 and gave me hope at the end of the Bush administration. And I don't see that person yet. Uh, But I can hope that someone who can expose in a way that's authoritative this clown and monster and the bankruptcy of the party that he is at the head of and does so with clarity, without dividing the country, without engaging in in tribalism, as Obama did try to do, um, that will be the person I will, will support. Yep. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, 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 thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast, or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes, 
you also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.